we're going to spend the next two Lord's Days looking at ministries. We're going to look at John's ministry, and then we'll look at the beginning of our Lord and Savior's ministry next Lord's Day, Lord willing. So today we're going to go through Luke 3, 1 through 20. It's a tall task, but the Lord will get us through it. So if you can open your Bibles and stand and read and hear the Word of God. Those that are able, of course. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Azurea and, and uh, Tachinitis, and Lysianus was tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore, bear fruits and keep them with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. But indeed the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what should we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors came also to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And soldiers were also questioning him, saying, What should we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or extort anyone, and to be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered, saying to them, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than me. And I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Triune God, I ask you to bless the preaching of your word for our spiritual good and for your glory. 
Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I will be directed to say what you, my Lord and God, would have me to say. God the Spirit, please empower me to deliver your word faithfully today, and please make this message a fire in my bones that cannot be contained. Holy Spirit, give me the strength needed to preach despite my many limitations and my many weaknesses. Please give us the grace to better live the truth that is preached today. May your word be profitable in all our lives. I ask for the believers, the dear saints here, that we will understand and apply your truth, and the word will transform us more and more into the image of Christ. I also pray for those who do not know you, that you will open the closed hearts to believe the truth. I ask this for your glory alone, in the name that is above all names, our Lord Jesus Christ. So before we begin, we're going to study, of course, John the Prophet, which is sometimes calls John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. I want us to keep in the back of our mind what this is, what the Bible is. So the question always to keep this answer is, what is the Bible about? What is the story of the Bible? So Google has gone over this many times, but I think it's very important every time you open Scripture, we know what the story of the Bible is about. So we're going to quote Morales one more time. The story of the Bible is the glorious drama of redemption. Is our triune Lord making a way for the people to dwell in his presence and behold his glorious face. Life with God in the house of God. This was the original goal of creation of the cosmos and which becomes the goal of redemption of the new creation. Morales also writes, Enter in the house of God to dwell with God, behold Him, glorify Him, and join Him eternally is the story of the Bible. The plot that makes sense of the various acts, persons, and places, and its pages, the deepest context for its doctrines. For this is the ultimate end. The Son of God shed His blood and poured out His Spirit from on high, even to bring us, us, into His Father's house in him as sons and daughters of God. This is the story. This is what we'll be talking about. God moving his drama of redemption. And the Messiah is about to make his presence known. But first, he sends someone in before him to prepare the way. So as we know, the biblical authors writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote God's in their revelation. But they were also people. Human instruments, whose backgrounds and personalities, God used recording his revelation. So before we get to chapter 3, we need to get a little context. Who is the author? What is the book of Luke? So actually, we know very little about Luke. We do know he's authored two books, Luke and Acts. We do know he was a meticulous historian. We do know he was a physician. And we do know he was a Gentile. In fact, the only Gentile to write Scripture in the New Testament. We also know that he was, had a very good command of the Greek language. He was very familiar with Salem and Reckon from reading Acts. And he loved recording geographical details. So he was well-educated, good observant, and a careful writer. 
this is the gospel we're about to go into. So Luke wrote this somewhere in the 60s. They, scholars, of course, fight about all this, but they think early to mid-60s is when Luke wrote this. And Luke's gospel or Luke's writings are unique in two ways. First, it's the longest gospel, 1,151 verses. Second, it's the only gospel with a sequel. The sequel is Acts. So even though the books are split, it was meant to be read together, Luke and then Acts. Because the two-volume work in Luke, he's introducing us to Jesus and his ministry. In Acts, he's showing how his Jesus' ministry relates into the early church. So they are meant to be together. Luke's gospel highlights the activity of a mighty and a faithful God through the Jesus, the promised one who shows the way. Luke's account speaks eloquently of God's salvation, first sent to the Jewish people, Luke, and then sent to the Gentiles in the Mediterranean, Acts, emphasizing how God offers salvation to all people, including those who are far off, regardless of ethnicity, nationality, social class, gender, or age. So Luke begins his gospel of Jesus Christ with the ministry of John the Baptist. I always find it interesting, interesting that I did this. Why would we call him John the Baptist? He was the last prophet. He should be called John the prophet. But to get a context of who this individual was, who's often overlooked, of course, he's, he made the way for Messiah. The Messiah is where the focus is. But yet God called him unconditional election before birth to set the path for God the Son to come in and start his ministry. So it's, I think, very important to look at. So to get a context of chapters 1 and 2, we're going to break it down. We'll go through it kind of quickly so we can get to chapter 3, which will is going to be exciting and be a good long ride. So 1 through 4 is his prologue, his introduction. Luke's going to tell us why he's doing this. And as we go through this, let's watch how John and Jesus or tandem here. So 5 through 25, Jesus, uh, John's birth is announced. 26 through 56, Jesus' birth is announced. 57 through 80, the birth of John. Chapter 2, the birth of Jesus and his childhood. So the purpose of, of his book is to assure believers in order that you may recognize in full certainty the teachings in which you have been instructed. In his prologue, he presents a history of Jesus as a result of his careful investigation in this subject matter. Because we know he's a very good historian, and he will, is going to lock his story into history. God works in history. He's above and not constrained by time, as we have learned in some of the Bible studies, but he can freely walk in there. And get his and get accomplished what he has ordained. So the prominence of John in the introductory section, where he is found in chapters one, two, three, seven, nine, sixteen, and twenty of Luke alone, warns us against a common tendency to merely look at him as a warm up to the main character. He was a vital component bringing the end of the Old Testament era, so the new so the Messiah could come in for the New Testament era. 
John himself is a fulfillment of prophecy, and his ministry begins the work of deliverance that Jesus will continue and accomplish on the cross by his resurrection. John is preparing the way for Emmanuel, God with us, or God is with us. Christ the White will show humanity that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And this prophet paved the way and prepared the way for that. The Messiah himself declared that John the Baptist was greater than any of the Old Testament saints. He was greater than Enoch, Moses, David, any of the prophets. He was greater than all those listed in Hebrews 11. As the monumental heroes of faith, no earthly king, military commander, philosopher was greater than John. He was the greatest person who had ever lived up to that time, both in terms of task and privilege, because he was preparing the way for God the Son. So if we look how chapter 1, how Luke mentions John, we get an idea of who this prophet is, who this one who was chosen from birth. The prophet... The promise of the birth of a special child shows a new age is dawning. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He is to be born to pious family. He'll be from from Levi's. His birth to aged parents beyond normal expectation is by God's special power. He will be great in the sight of the Lord, verse 15. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, verse 15. And he will turn the many sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. John the Baptist is is to fulfill the road of Elijah. Turn hearts of the disobedient to the attitudes of righteousness. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And because at his birth all this was going on with Zechariah, his tongue loosening and prophesying, the people began, were wondering, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was indeed on him. And Zechariah prophesies, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to the people and the forgiveness of their sins. He will lead the people to repent for the forgiveness of sins. He will be the herald of the coming salvation. As he grew, he became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. So there is much that we learn about John the Baptist. We also need to know that before John, there had not been a prophet of the Lord for 400 years. Not since the time of Malachi. Nor had there been an angel talking to men for 500 years since the time of Zechariah. But, in approximately the year 5 B.C., in a temple in Jerusalem, an angel appeared to an elderly and ordinary priest named Zechariah. And the world will never be the same since. So chapters 1 and 2 prepare us for the ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus, which we will take next Sunday, Lord willing. As we go into chapter 3, the ministry of the Baptist is launched with God's word coming to him in the wilderness. 
Luke will now focus on the figure of John's ministry as a forerunner of the Messiah. So the outline is pretty, is pretty short. We're going to look at John the Baptist. We're going to look at his ministry of baptism and repentance. As we go, to, go through three, here are some key highlights that we're going to come through. For one, Luke anchors the commencement of Jesus' ministry in the world history and with the figure of John. And we will discuss that in a moment. Luke's introduction of John is the longest of the Gospels. He fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of one who is preparing for the coming of God. John's baptism is a symbol of repentance and a new beginning. His baptism challenges Jews not to rely on their Jewishness for salvation. True repentance leads to a practical change of life. John's revival moment is highly significant, but he himself is not the Messiah, though the crowds will think he may be. His fearless concentration of Herod Antipodus leads to his imprisonment, and those who have read the gospel know his martyrdom. And this is how Luke will end our section. His ministry ends as quick as it began. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Atarea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Sophias, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, angered in history. And I can't say it be any better than what Garland has said. Christianity is not a mystery religion with mythical and fantastical stories. It happened in history. And we're going to see all the prophets who were called in the Old Testament happen in history, and it's documented and logged in when they appeared and when God called them. It happened in history. Luke fixes his story firmly in the context of world history. Those wearing crowns and holding the reins of power fooled themselves into believing that they, they determined the course of history. But the narrative makes it clear that God's plan is not controlled by laws of kings and their machinations of politicians or the solemn rituals of priests. History is directed by a transcendent power leading to an appointed time that is not in the appointed books of any of these rulers, though they fool themselves. It is a time only God controls. We must always remember this. God is in control every single second. As Sproul said, not one molecule is out of order. He's got it. The Word of God bypasses the halls of power, all their royal trappings, comes to the lone prophet, in the wilderness. The potentates get footholds in the secular history, but God's purpose of manifest in persons who were largely unknown to the historians of that age. So the setting for the word of God to come to the prophet is set. It places us at around 29 AD. 
as God begins to move in history after 400 years of silence and manifests his salvation. And all this occurred in a public square, not hidden from anyone. This is the extended effort to date John's arrival shows the event's importance. The Baptist calls the prophetic ministry is more than a call than any of the Old Testament prophets. Rather, what is present for Luke is the beginning of the epic of fulfillment. For if all the speeches of Acts are considered, one can see how closely Luke links Jesus and John, John and Jesus. John and Jesus should, be, should not be totally separated in the description of Luke's salvation historical presentation. Verse 2b, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, our scene set. Luke describes the style typical of a call of the prophets and how the word of God came to John. God intervenes again in history and calls John to give his message to humans. John is directed by God to begin his ministry. And this is how the prophets are commonly introduced in the Old Testament. As we just read, less a listing of the current rulers and the chronological settings of their, and their careers. The mention of the rulers provides a political context and the opposition that will ultimately bring John's undoing. The prophets are also frequently introduced as the son of someone, again, linking them into history. The mention of Zechariah takes us back to the infancy narrative and the prophecies about John's future role. The prophet's vocation was also lost in Scripture by noting that the word of God came to him. Jesus will affirm that John is more than a prophet in chapter 7 and the last of the prophets in chapter 16. And Zechariah makes it clear that He's the prophet of the Most High, is subordinate to the Son of the Most High. And Zechariah's prophetic hymn has a Christological slant and becomes clear that the main reason for the blessing of the God of Israel is what he has done for his people in Jesus, the Messiah. So John is to prepare the way of the Lord. Like the morning star, held in, held in the sun, he was the glimmer of light that the betokened the coming of the day that was about to shed rays on Israel and the world. He was a voice crying out before the coming of the word. So in the wilderness, so in Luke 1, 180, we know that as a teenager, he kind of went out to the wilderness. While still a teenager, he abandoned all the comforts and conveniences of civilized society, moved out into the Judean wilderness in the Jordan Valley, north of the Dead Sea, a wild remote area from the nearest town, Jericho. I cannot imagine any one of us doing that as a teenager. Just say we're going to Eastern Oregon to mill nowhere. Now, John did come from a priestly family. But he did not act as a priest. He was not in the temple. He was in the wilderness. 
the word of the word of the Lord came to the last Old Testament prophet in the wilderness, not in the temple or to his priest. He came into the wilderness, not the king's palace. John's ministry reveals that God was now bypassing the temple and its religious ceremonies. John is in the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan, just as Israel was in the wilderness before entering the promised land, before the promises would be realized. Had, Israel had to be cleansed of its sin and turn afresh to God. This is what John was getting the people ready for. Repent, repent, repent. There is one coming. That is the salvation of us all. As Rodin writes, the episode recalls Israel's wilderness sojourn. It was perceived as a region where God would begin to renew all of the people. The wilderness was also the place where other prophets went expecting to come the coming activity of God. According to Second Kings, Elijah was taken up in the wilderness beyond Jericho across the Jordan. This may be why John retreats to the wilderness to proclaim the coming of the eschatological judgment that would be preceded by the coming of Elijah. He did not understand himself to be Elijah reborn, let alone the coming Messiah. The wilderness featured Israel's hope of a new beginning. Verse 3, and he came into all the district from around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is a summary of John's ministry. John is now a traveling preacher. First he's in the wilderness, now he's coming to the Jordan, all up and down the Jordan preaching. His message of repentance that is tied to a baptism. So John prepares the crowds for the common judgment through their repentance, expressed by the, their immersion and ethical transformation, and testifies that the one who comes after him is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. The nation is, the same, is at the same place when it was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the same place as it was in exile 70 years in Babylon, the nation must go through the Jordan again, so to speak, and thus be baptized. That is, immersed in the Jordan to symbolize the cleansing, symbolize the cleansing of sin. The new exodus Isaiah promised would lead to the forgiveness of sins then. In the context of preaching to the Jews, repentance refers to turn around, returning to the already given covenant, and the relationship that that covenant entails. In context, the coming judgment, they must turn around if they are to meet God in the right direction. For the Gentiles, it will entail turning from their idols to the one true God. Preaching that the people must urgently repent is part of God's renewed plan to deliver Israel. The baptism of John is very interesting, not to get too technical, but it was worth sharing. The word used is very specific for John's baptism. The word baptisma, which means immersion or submersion in water, or a baptism of immersion in a trial of suffering, of calamities, of affliction, 
which one is quite overwhelmed. This would be Christ saying, Jesus saying, I have a baptism to go through. This is the same word for water or for calamities. The word itself means the result of the act of dipping, which is completely different from the other word for baptism, baptesis. The IS tells you it's the act of baptism. OS will tell you it's the completed act of baptism. But the point is, is baptisma and baptismo are two different things. They're not the same. That word is only used for John, baptisma, or it's used when Christ is saying the baptism I must go through, the suffering, his baptism. The rest of the time, the Christian baptisms, baptism and the triune God is all baptismal. It's two separate things. I think it's very important that we always remember that that baptism, as we will see, is a type, a, a path for what's coming. This was a distinct baptism associated with John, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. It was known as the baptism of repentance. Relating to its repentance, it's also known as John's baptism. It should not be taken as the same baptism of Jesus or the baptism in the name of Jesus. Totally different. And Dr. Bach says it very good, I believe. John's baptism is unique to him and is grounded in his prophetic office. It is a call to commitment and includes a recognition that God is coming. It is neither the washing of a separated covenant community as in the Qumran, nor it is an initiatory ride of the proselytes of Judaism. Unlike traditional Judaism, it's not a religious act related to bringing sacrifices. Rather, it's an affirmation, a washing that looks with hope for God's coming and lives in the light of one's relationship to him. And this attitude is much like the New Testament emphasis on a life of faith. John's baptism was to cease. Well, the baptism in the name of Christ or in the triune Godhead was to continue and a practice that continues today. The immersion of baptism is connected to repentance, not to John himself. He cannot grant forgiveness of sins. Repentance produces a life lived in the sense of responsibility before a sovereign God. It is an internal attitude that aims at a product. The idea in a religious context speaks of reorientation of one's perspective from sin to God. John challenged his Jewish audience to change their thinking. Such reorienting of the relationship to God meant they were to live differently. And the final characteristic mentioned about this baptism is this goal. It is directed toward the forgiveness of sins. John prepares the people for God. This is what he's doing, constantly preparing for the one to come. John says that his baptism is nothing compared to the baptism of the Mighty One and what he brings. So John's baptism is a baptism of promise that looks to the greater baptism of the Spirit. 
The baptism that comes is the promise of the Father. The baptism that comes to all who turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. So in short, John's baptism is a step on the way to the promised one's forgiveness. Again, preparing the way, preparing is Israel. The repentance and review here will not make only one alter the way one lives, but also will cause one to see the mightier one to come, to promise God. To submit to this baptism is to confess one's commitment to this perspective. This is the essence of John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4 through 6. So here John is appropriating Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, to explain his ministry. He is the voice in the wilderness preparing the way. In Isaiah, the wilderness represented the desert between Babylon and Israel. The path Israel will have to traverse in order to return home. John is the voice crying out, summoning Israel to prepare for the Lord's way. In the Old Testament, the Lord whose way is prepared is Yahweh. But here, the Lord is Jesus. The imagery of making paths straight, filling valleys, leveling, leveling hills, mountaintops, straightening the crooked, smoothing the rough spots, refers to topography. Israel would traverse and return from Babylon. At the same time, the imagery should be interpreted in terms of the new life demanded of Israel. They must straighten their life. Out. They must renounce their pride of sin. The salvation and forgiveness proclaimed by John is found finally, finally in Jesus himself. Luke reported John going into the wilderness without any explanation why he did so. Chapter 1, verse 80. Now, with the citation here of 40, Isaiah 43-5, he explains it. John's ministry is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Verse 7 through 9. So he was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the come of the coming wrath to come? So can you imagine going out to street corners to prophesize when people evangelize, and this is what you're telling the people coming to you? Crowds are flocking to John to be baptized, but what does he do? He doesn't celebrate. Hey, come on in. I'm, I'm glad you're here. No. He identifies them. It can be translated various ways, and they're quite interesting. A brood of vipers, sons of snakes, offsprings of snakes, or as Triner has termed it, the offspring of the serpent, capital S, going back to Genesis. This is how he greeted the people coming. He warns them. He went right into the warning. Warns them about the wrath that will be poured out on the last day, on the day of the Lord. A very common theme in the Old Testament. John's words refute the notion that the baptism itself, as a mechanical act, will protect them from the impending judgment that's coming. They must produce fruit 
that's in accordance with repentance, fruit that verifies their repentance as reality, which we will see throughout the whole New Testament. The same thing. One must share the faith of Abraham to be a child of Abraham. Physical descent from Abraham is not sufficient. What we all real must realize is God does not have grandchildren. Uh, someone told me. He only has children. You can't get in through a religious family. You have to get in by his, by his unconditional election. You have to be pursued by him. If it, and, and, and he's making the point that if I need children, we'll just call some out, some rocks. There's some children for Abraham. That tells you what it means. God, again, is after his family. The family now that he will one day dwell with. This is the process to get to his family that he had in Genesis. He will one, again, one day again have in Revelation. We are in the path to get there, to dwell with his people. He says the day of judgment is at hand. Since even now the axe is poised to strike, strike the trees that have no fruit. Trees that do not produce fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire. Judgment. Clear denotes the judgment await in the final days if they are not truly repentant. Now we're going to go to verses 10 through 14. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what, what do we do? We've got a repentant heart. Now what? What does that look like? So when the crowds ask him, John gives them practical advice. Those who turn to the Lord are generous with what they own, sharing food and clothing with those who are in need. Similarly, tax collectors should not extort money or skim off the top for themselves, which is a very common practice. Soldiers must also desist from extortion and be content with the pay that they have received. No shakedowns. It is that it reflected in a concern for one, one's fellow humans' repentance. That's how it expresses itself. That's what John is saying here, which makes an effort to meet the needs of others who do not have. It's motivated by a preparation for God's coming and the possibility of God's wrath. Repentance produces a life lived with a sense of responsibility before a sovereign God. It's an eternal attitude that aims at a product. Repentance means to turn. Such a reorientation of the relationship to God means that we will live differently. We will live differently. We will not always live successfully, but we will live differently. We will live a life of repentance. We are beggars at the cross. We repent daily. We are there, but not yet, as people like to say. Not yet. We're a day closer, but not today. Verse 15. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, he, go, he goes ahead and answers it. 
John's preaching stirred messianic expectations, and some of the crowd thought, this is the Messiah we were looking for. But John will answer him. As for me, I baptize with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly, thoroughly clean his threshing floor and to gather the wheat in the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The question about whether John is the Christ leads into the following response. He will declare a threefold superiority to Christ. Jesus is stronger than John, one mightier than me. Jesus brings a better baptism than John. The mention of water baptism serves to set up an initial contrast which expresses Jesus' superiority. And he will come as the judge. This is the one who you are looking for. John's declaration to people that a stronger one is coming, and that the one he is so much greater than John that he is not even worthy to unbuckle his sandal. Now we kind of lose that when it comes out of contact because we don't wear many sandals and we sure don't go around and tie people's sandals. But most people in the first century either were barefoot or had sandals. And one duty of a slave was to untie the sandals from the master's feet. In Judaism, this was such a degrading act that a Hebrew slave would not even undertake it. Thus John is saying he is so inferior, inferior to the common one that he is not worthy to perform even the most menial task for his master. True humbleness here. Second part of 16, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Schreiner did such a good job here that it's just this beauty. He just condenses everything we need to know here. John draws here on the promise of the coming Holy Spirit and the Old Testament prophets. When the Spirit comes, a new creation will dawn. The Lord promises to pour out His Spirit on His people. And in Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, the gift of the Spirit is tied to return from exile. We see all this exodus, all this return type of, of wordage. The Lord says, He will cleanse His people with water, give them new hearts, and put His Spirit within them so they will walk in His ways. When the Spirit comes, Israel will be restored from exile and live in the land again. Joel anticipates the day in which the Spirit will be poured out on all. The Messiah who comes after John, Jesus, will be the one who baptizes his people in the Spirit, signifying that the day of restoration has arrived. Baptism with fire can refer to judgment, since fire often denotes judgment in the Old Testament. If this is the case, 
Then Luke continues the theme of judgment from verse 16. It is more likely, however, that Hosea 4, verses 2 through 5, is the background where the prophet speaks of the remnant preserved in Jerusalem. The filth of the people will be clean, cleansed by the spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord's presence will be restored in Israel in the same way he dwelt with the people during the Exodus. If this is the case, then the fire, the spirit as fire refines and purifies the people of God. Why can't it be both? The fire refers to judgment for those that do not know Christ. The fire refers to purifying for those that do. We can see throughout the New Testament how fire is used to purify the saints. Fiery trials, if you need to go through them, as Peter said. The contrast between baptism with water is outward and symbolic, and the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a real inward change that sums up the difference between John's preparatory ministry and the true role of the Messiah that will follow. Verse 17. The picture here is both of wheat and chaff laying on the threshing floor with a rake or shovel, depends on the translation, is brought in to clear the floor, removing the chaff, while the wheat is deposited in the barn. In the Old Testament, chaff is always for the wicked, which is, which is easily blown away. The wheat, of course, stands for the righteous, who will, not, who, who will escape judgment. The Messiah will immerse with the Spirit those who belong to him. But those who are judged will be burned with unquenchable fire. And so, of course, unquenchable fire is everlasting judgment. Another picture of Christ coming in. Paul and his children, they do not receive judgment. They are again separated. Notice they are together. Chaff and seed is together. Just like the fields, wheat and tares are together. And they are finally separated at the day of judgment. In concluding the overview of John's ministry, Luke portrays John as the first of many servants of God who will suffer at the hands of those who reject the message. Some cannot stomach God's message confronting their approach to life. Sin is ugly, and some cannot stand to have it exposed. Even when forgiveness is offered at the same time, that is the tragedy we see of Herod's response. Because we know John spoke to him often. This is his response. Persecution. And John would become the first of many. So John's ministry points to Christ as the superior one. Jesus is superior because he will bring a greater baptism associate with the Spirit. This ministry will separate people from one another. So great is the one to come that John does not feel he's worthy to be even a slave. Such is the exemplary humility of John. And pointing to Jesus, John clearly witnesses the coming of the Mighty One. So now the stage is set. Next week we get to see the Mighty One. Let us pray. 
Father, we just want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for purchasing us for you, O Father, that what you ordained, God the Son accomplished through God the Spirit, that we are able to gather here today to worship and praise and give you thanks to the one who came and made a way for us to get to God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your accomplishment. May you continue to guard our hearts in Christ. Keep us focused on you. May God the Spirit always keep you, Lord, as our first love. And may you be the one we seek with all of our heart and our strength and our mind. We just want to thank you for your love and kindness that flows ever from your throne. And we long and we look forward to the day when we are a people and you are dwelling among us. Thank you, Lord, for coming into time. Thank you, Lord, for having a way of the drama of redemption, a story, a story that brings your people together and enables them to dwell with a holy, holy God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.